What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of the Dragzine Podcast. I'm your host, Senior Editor Brian Wagner. This week on the show, we have the man that you do not want to line up against in top sportsman, Mr. Don Mazir. Don, what's going on? Hello, Brian. Happy to be with you. Great to have you on the show. Uh, I, I definitely want to get to your, your recent top sportsman uh, kind of accolades and whatnot recently, but... Uh, because, you know, we're just finally now starting to dig out from the winter time here on the East Coast. But y'all been racing quite a bit out on the West Coast here recently. Yeah, we get an early start on it. Luckily, we have the weather here that supports uh, a season that uh, lasts from February all the way to November out here. So uh, we don't get much of an off season, but uh, I think that that helps with our sanity to keep us keep us in the garage for a very short time and out on the racetrack for a long time yeah yeah that, that's the way to go up here we have to come up with creative ways to entertain ourselves everything from ice fishing to snowmobile racing so it's uh n- never fun and whatnot and you know y'all out on the west coast also get the ability to have that year-round racing but then you also don't have to deal with the absolutely brutal temperatures that they get down in the south when they try to race year-round yeah, they talk about a lot of people leaving California, and there's plenty of reasons for that, but, uh, you know, the good weather is one reason to stay. Yeah, and, you know, we talked about this in our little pre-show chat, and there was something I wanted to kind of ask you, because I've never really seen a story about it. I'm sure our guests would be interested to know how Mazir Enterprises started, because you guys are one of the go-tos when it comes to a lot of certain high-performance drag racing products how did this company start? Because you don't probably roll out of one di- bed one day and go, I think we need to make water pumps and starters. <laughs> yeah. Um, Unless that's what actually happened, which would be equally amazing. It's, it's, uh, we're, when we look back at where, where we've come from and, and uh, you know, how we're positioned in the market and stuff, it's, it's pretty cool just to, you know, the three of us brothers are here at the, here at work every day and, and we look back at our lives and how we ended up here, and we didn't even realize some of the some of the building blocks that were getting put in place early. Um, my grandfather actually worked for um, uh, Parnelli Jones um, and did a bunch of uh, rear end gear setup for NASCAR guys and stuff like that. So um, while he wasn't actively involved in racing, he was he was kind of behind the scenes um, for a lot of uh, race track race cars on the track. Um, and my dad always had the, the bug. He was street racing in Los Angeles and stuff. Um, my mom does not really embrace the, the racing stuff so much, but she's been supportive. Uh, so the deal they made when, when they got married is he wouldn't drive. He could, he could build race cars and go racing with my uncle and, and us boys, but, uh, he wouldn't drive. So, um, uh, we were always hanging around the racetrack began, uh, going racing with dad and uncle Dan for, uh, you know, through the seventies and stuff. Uh, and as soon as we were able to get in the, you know, to, to, to build our own race cars, we did that. Um, so the three of us boys were learning manufacturing skills like really early, I, you know, <laughs> making, making our own skateboards, even when we were kids, you know, so, um, we were always getting in the garage and drilling and cutting and doing whatever, whatever we could to, to try to make the next thing. So, um, my oldest brother, Dave, um, uh, was, he built his first race car in our garage. And shortly after that, dad started Mazir Enterprises. This is like, I don't know, 1980 or so. Um, and, uh, 
it was kind of a way just to keep us out of out of trouble down here in Southern California. You know, he didn't want us uh, out at the party on on Saturday night. He wanted us thinking about you know anything else. So <laughs> keeping it constructive. So um, you know, on on Fridays and Saturday nights, and gosh, even even during the school week. Uh, uh, I know my curfew was 11 o'clock, which I rarely made because I was busy welding one more tab onto the race car, or, you know, thinking of how the shifter was going to get through there and, you know, whatever it was. So my uh, my senior year in high school, I didn't get much sleep, but it was mostly because I was trying to get my race car done. And uh, uh, so that was that was kind of the initial idea behind uh, Mazir Enterprises was to build trailers and race cars and whatever fabrication you know, and stuff, but we did do machine, some machining on, on stuff, manual machining, but, uh, Mike, uh, the middle brother here, he was, uh, going to work or going to school for CNC machining, uh, thinking that he would go to work for a defense contractor in Southern California or something. And same time, Dave was going to San Diego state and got his engineering degree. Um, and uh, so Dave went to work in, you know, the automations industry for a while. And Mike and I uh, ended up um, buying the business from dad at, at the time. He gave us, you know, just just he's always been about providing opportunity for us. So he made the terms really, you know, amenable to us. And uh, so Mike and I went to work and worked our tails off trying to get the machine shop going. And uh, when we had what we thought was enough business to bring Dave back. He was open to the idea. This is about 1994 or so. Um, and Dave came back to work for us and uh, we immediately uh, started looking for our, a way to make our own product line. Uh, it didn't necessarily need to be in the racing industry, but it's what we knew and it's what we were passionate about. So it made all the sense in the world um, to do that. You know, just uh, just kind of a timing thing. At the same time, we bought a race car from back east from our friends at uh, Chassis Engineering. And uh, that race car came out uh, west, and we started to campaign it and just look at, at components on the car that we knew we could make better. And uh, the water pump was, was one of the first ones we looked at and just thought, you know, we got some ideas that, that we think are going to be um, good solutions for, for people. So that's kind of where that, the whole product line kind of, kind of jumped off from. That's amazing that the entire company started from the fact that your dad needed a way to keep you guys in line. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. We weren't wild kids, but, uh, he didn't want to give us any open doors either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's like, you know, there, there's a lot of parents out there that are probably nod their head going, you know, that makes a lot of sense because you got a couple that are really smart. You, you know, the parents, you can probably see the writing on the wall. It's like, I got to find a way to keep these yahoos creatively engaged and entertained. Otherwise, the college fund might become bail money. That's that's it. You know, we're really close to the Mexico border here. So there's all kinds of trouble we could get in. And some of my friends did. I wasn't going with them, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's i've seen a quite a few little meme posts about this online you know you, you want to keep your kids out of trouble and keep them off drugs and want i give them a racing addiction because i'll never be able to afford the lawyers or the drugs exactly <laughs> which is yeah which is dead true when you grow up in a racing family because that's what you are all you know focused on on all the time is you know like you said staying up late trying to find ways to make the car faster and you know put every ounce of thought into it yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really good goal. Um, 
I don't know if you remember, um, there was a top fuel racer. He was a low budget guy. His name was Ray Higley. And, uh, you know, he, he was always just scraping and scratching to get, get his nitro car down the track, but he made a really good living as an underwater welder. And the reason that he knew how to weld at all was because he had that racing bug, you know, he, he just, uh, he found that niche, some way to, to figure out how to make things. And, and we're kind of in the same boat, you know, we just figured out how to make things. And, and that, that challenge um, still exists today. We, we come up with some flex plate or starter designs that are, it, it takes a little bit of expertise to get through, you know, the, the, um, the thought and the, uh, the actual manufacturing of these things. And, and you just keep building on it. It's really, it's really, a fun challenge for, for all three of us brothers. And I think that when you have a creative mind like that and you have the means, that's what really drives you to do stuff like that. You know, I, I do 3d printing for scale model car stuff and other things. And I wish I had this, like the CAD skills to design a lot of stuff because I get these great ideas. I'm like, that would be awesome to make. I could print that, but I have no clue how to design it. So <laughs> I, I know what it's like to, to have that, but you, you guys have that ability to take the things, the extra step. We do. And we, and we look at the shop and how it changes year after year. So, you know, we, we kind of, um, don't keep machines, CNC machines. We don't keep longer than 10 years. Um, so we, so the, the shop has kind of a natural rhythm of getting rid of older equipment and buying in newer stuff and expanding capabilities. And it's just really, um, you know, when, when, when you get a chance to take a step back and look at, Oh, okay. Look at all the capability that we have here to make stuff in the United States. We're very proud of that. Now, this is something I, th I think that our, our listeners might find interesting to kind of get your, your mindset on is, you know, there's, thousands of companies that make automotive parts across all realms. Not all of them are necessarily, we'll say, driven by people that are racers themselves. Do you think being a racer yourself really helps you guys kind of stay on top of what your clients need to see because you are out beating on your own equipment all the time? Yeah, there's no doubt. Um, we've talked about that so many times within our office because, um, when we build a part, we really um, won't do it unless we think it's a better idea, unless we think it solves an existing problem. There's a lot of components that we could be making um, just kind of as a me too scenario. Oh, they, you know, somebody sells a lot of those and we could make a dollar or two on them. Okay. But um, when you're in the middle of the, the challenge of trying to make a car better, more reliable, faster, lighter, whatever the thing is, we, I think we, 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 um, through our product line, we can offer people good solutions that, that, um, kind of tell the story that we understand the challenges. You know, we, we are facing the same challenges. We're, we're working on our cars and, and seeing what parts fail. Um, we're in the, we don't race PDRA back East, but we try to attend a lot of those races to rep our product. And that puts us in the middle of a lot of the uh, fast door slammer, fast dragster um, guys, um, as well as the NHRA crowd. Obviously we're, we're NHRA racers as well. So um, that, that just keeps us right in line with what's happening today. What, 
parts are um, are causing the biggest problems for racers because it really comes down to just solving problems at the end of the day. Trying to, trying to help people get where they're going. And let's be honest here. Us racers are awesome at creating said problems because we find creative ways to destroy stuff that engineers go, that's not possible. How did you do that? <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely true. You know, the, the amount of horsepower that's getting put to the ground, uh, is, it, it, it's not going in the, it's not going negative. It's, they're definitely, everybody's putting more and more power to the ground. Uh, you see it even in some of the super classes where there's a set index. Okay, we used to run 990 at uh, 140, 145 miles an hour. Now it's uh, 170. Once I don't know what what the top end of that class is now. Like might even might even be close to 180 now. That's insane. <laughs> that just bl- like that blows yeah. my mind that people are going that quick in a 990 class or that fast rather. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that fast, and it's it's just uh, making horsepower, and uh, at the end of the day, it's just a it's a it is a bracket race, but you you know some guys are convinced that they need to control it from behind, and by golly, they're going to build two thousand horsepower to make that happen. Yeah, that's uh, the old antage of you're killing ants with a thermonuclear device. <laughs> just you know, wipe highly the, effective. Yeah, yeah, it's like you're going to kill everything. You're going to you know you might as well do it right. Nuke it. Yeah. Yeah. Now that kind of is a nice smooth segue into, you know, we we alluded to earlier, you've, you're, you're two for two in top sportsman wins this year. And to me, top sportsman and even top dragster are interesting classes because that is the pinnacle of bracket racing to me because of how quick and fast you are, you know, the, the bottom end of that, you know, guys are going the quickest they can go is six ten, which is just that, that's insane that they're going that quick trying to bracket race. What led you to getting into top sports? What was your, you know, your racing path? Uh, I start with well, the first car I built was a uh, dragster, rear engine dragster when I was in high school. I finished that right after I uh, graduated high school. Um, and I, I ran dragsters all the way through the mid nineties, sold them to, you know, grow up and buy a house and get married and all of that. Um, but I've always like liked uh, the door car path. You know, SoCal Pro Gas is kind of a kind of an iconic series here in Southern California. And um, my brothers were were SoCal Pro Gas racers. So when the three of us brothers um, were ready to jump back into racing, that's the kind of car that we got. We got a um, '95 Pontiac Firebird and ran that in. in super gas, uh, for gosh, 12 years, maybe, maybe a little more. Um, and top sportsman was always a fascinating deal. We didn't really have it on the West coast all that much, but we were in the early two thousands, we were sponsoring IHRA and that, um, put us in that circle of fast door cars. They had them and, uh, just a really fascinating deal to, to be able to bracket race, uh, a short wheelbase car that quick. Uh, so from that point, it was kind of a goal of mine, although I didn't, didn't really know if I'd be successful enough to, to really make that step. Um, and just got the chance to do it. Um, a friend of mine bought a car complete cause he wanted the engine and trans out of it. Um, uh, that's chip room as he bought Ted Carley's car. And then, uh, he had that roller sitting there. And I had just mentioned to him like two weeks earlier that I really would, would want to get into a top sportsman car if it was possible. So um, 
it was a Jerry Bickle car, which uh, we have a great relationship with Jerry Bickle ra uh, race cars. So it made all the sense in the world for me to, to buy that car um, that I couldn't quite afford. That was a, that was a nervous conversation with my wife. <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> and uh, then it took me another year and a half to get an engine and transmission combination together and stuff. Um, but uh, it's, it's just a heck of a lot of fun bracket racing that fast. And I started when I, when I bought the car, I, I started talking a lot more to the racers that, that I thought were successful in that time. That's 2014 or so. And uh, trying to figure out if you actually can, bracket race or if you pretty much just pin it wire to wire and and don't bother sizing up the competition and and it was they you know the successful guys made it pretty clear now you have to you have to be cognizant you have to bracket race those things if you want to turn the wind light on it doesn't you know even though things are happening faster you have to bring your mind up to that level you know so that's that's the that began the study of what's really humanly possible you know how can how how uh, aware can you be of where you're at on the track and, and safety wise, making sure the car is going to get to the other end, but then also being cognizant of what's happening in the other lane. And if the race is sizing up the way you thought it was going to. So it's, it's a, uh, it's a very fast paced, uh, uh, thought process going on there. Yeah. I can't, you know, I'm trying to play the stripe, you know, at 120, I couldn't imagine where some of those guys, you, you tack a two on the front of that, you're going 200 plus, trying to do that that's that's not easy it's well i think it took me probably 40 passes in the car before my brain had caught up to it you know um and so it's just it you need a lot of seat time to, to be successful in any any of these forms of bracket racing you know or drag racing in general you have to be comfortable in the seat it just takes time it just it just really takes a lot of experience to, to get there. You know? Yeah, it becomes almost like, you know, like muscle memory and being yep. able to pro like if you really think about it, there's so much that goes into racing a top sportsman car even before you try to make the lick. Because, again, you know, people, I think, have become desensitized to how fast you can go these days because it has become easier but at the same time, it's not easy because you're talking about trying to get a big cubic inch nitrous motor to behave itself and be repeatable on a regular basis. That in amongst itself is a miracle. It, it really is. Um, I think I'm fortunate that uh, a lot of people ran nitrous before I decided to and they made the mistakes that I didn't have to make. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> my my engine builder Monty Green. He he's been running nitrous for gosh probably over twenty years, um, and uh, I'm sure he paid the price. You know, breaking parts and learning things and stuff. But but when it came time to put to put all the pieces together, he he built uh, the bottom end is is absolutely perfect. Um, he wasn't real comfortable with the EFI, just just not a lot of experience with it. So the guys that uh, at, uh, we already had a really good relationship with John Meany over at Big Stuff, um, and since then Ben Ben David Al at uh, Ben's High Performance uh, has been helping me tune it. But they came out with this controller um, about three years ago that that is just so fast um, in the way that it controls the the fuel compared to the nitrous. Um, that it made the tuning, it, it really brought it to a whole other level. The car was good in 2016. Um, I finished second nationally 
and the car was really good then, but this new box is is just got so much faster response time and and features as far as bringing fuel in that the tuning tools have really come a long way in the last five years or so. So, you know, that, that kind of brings up a, a question that I have that I don't know if you'd be able to answer it or not. As far as comparing top sportsmen to like, a, you know, we'll say a Nitrous Pro Mod, do you, is it really like that much more of a, you know, you're doing a lot more precision tuning because you're trying to ride a number versus, you know, a, a Pro Mod where it's heads up, you're just trying to carpet bomb the track into submission? Yeah, I think it's a different approach, personally. Um, Chassis-wise, we don't put the car on the edge. Um, I got plenty of wing in the car to make sure it gets really stable at the top end so that I can actually bracket race it. Whereas a pro mod guy, he's going to put the wing down, let it get light and and fast, you know? Yeah. (laughs) They want the last hundredth, the last two hundredth, the last three mile an hour or whatever they're going to get out of it. Um. So I think um, we're a little more on the safe side as far as chassis tuning. Um, Same with uh, the way the car launches. Um, There's a way to make a car fast or there's a way to make it less track dependent. Um, And all I'm doing is relying on people a lot smarter than me when it comes to chassis tune. And uh, uh, Clayton over at Chassis Engineering is is the guy that that really helps me um, make sure it's going to do something predictable every time not necessarily the fastest but very predictable yeah that makes sense because i figure you're trying to be a lot more surgical versus where they're trying to rotate the earth and pound everything they have in the first 60 feet whereas with the top sportsman car you're just trying to make sure it's going to do what you need it to do every time dependably and repeatably yeah yeah it in you can't lose sight of the fact that it's a bracket race and it needs to be consistent. You got to be able to put a number on the car and know the car is going to make it, you know? So I was going to say, yeah, that's what makes it interesting when you start seeing all the different guys and top sportsmen that are bringing in, you know, the different power adders, whether it's a different form of supercharger and, and turbos now where you're seeing that even changing the game even more. That's true. That's true. And I think, um, if, if the turbo guys can get a handle on launching the car consistently, um, that's going to become uh, a lot bigger um, issue for people who are trying to race against them. <laughs> yeah. But it's right now they have their hands full trying to spool the turbos and, and make the cars launch uh, repeatably. Um, so I think from, from that standpoint, I really still like the nitrous approach. Uh, it's, it's tempting to look at the pro chargers. They make a ton of power. And, uh, you know, they're not super expensive bottom ends under the blower. So, I mean, it's, it's a pretty good cost-effective way to go fast. But I still think for bracket racing, the nitrous brings something that those other power adders don't. Yeah, and that's, you know, talking with Procharger and Vortec and the different racers about the centrifugal blowers and how that has changed the game. And then on top of that, that's, that's the other thing I like about Top Sportsman is you can legit see in – several different pairs, a screw blower, a roots blower, two different kinds of centrifugal blowers, a nitrous car and a turbo car, literally all within the same round of racing. Yeah, yeah. A lot of guys are still just doing it naturally aspirated, um, which is fine until uh, until the fields get a little faster and they can't quite qualify with the, with the NA stuff, which I don't see that happening out here. I'm glad you mentioned Vortec because they've been a huge supporter of the uh, division seven program out here. We couldn't have uh, 
the top sportsman racing going without that that company so so hats off to them for for uh, supporting the the uh, top sportsman program um but uh yeah that's that's another interesting part of what we're doing the the na cars uh versus the the centrifugal blowers i, I really like that aspect of fast bracket racing yeah and that's you know don't mess with a determined naturally aspirated racer because they are so hard-headed that they are going to find a way to go fast even if it's the most insane thing that they can ever think of they're going to try it yeah jeff gillette uh is the guy i raced in the final at pomona and that is one quick car it's not a big cubic inch engine he, he does a tremendous amount of tuning on that car um and it's almost as fast as mine i think i only spotted him a tenth and a half and i'm shooting uh, 350 or 400 horsepower of nitrous on top of mine that he doesn't do. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty incredible. Yeah. It's, it, you know, it's like the, the shop I was at, we were putting a roll cage in one of my project cars this weekend. We were talking about, you know, comp eliminator racing. And then those guys are the, they're the, they really are, I think the most, they are the mad scientists of drag racing because they will come up with things that are off the wall to try to bust an index and try to go fast. Yeah, yeah, they they are really in it, innovative. It's uh, it's more work than I would put into it. Honestly, they they they're the hardest working guys out there. The comp eliminator guys searching for every single nickel they can get. Yeah, they <laughs> and it, again, it, it's one of those things where they come up with this idea where they're looking through the rule book and they're like, "Hey, let's take a pro stock motor and saw it in half. That'll be a great engine." I just that that blew, how do you think of that? Yeah, we're we're doing some specialty uh, uh, flex plates right now for some comp eliminator guys, and they have to absolutely be the lightest weight things and and uh, twelve bolts hanging on to the to them uh, bolting them to the crankshaft because they shake so hard. You know, some of the four cylinders terrible harmonics, but they make great power for the cubic inches. So. <laughs> they, they they just plan on disposable parts behind it <laughs> oh the the holt family here the chassis shop here in columbus they do comp eliminator racing on the side and they got some crazy turbocharged clutches you know clutch uh honda engine and they destroy stuff all the time in the name of trying to figure out how to go faster and the scary thing is is it's like for those guys it's like sighting and mortars oh that was too far Oh, that was too close. They're trying to sight it in, except they're just, you know, sending rotating assembly parts in a low orbit. They're like, oh, well, now we know what not to do. <laughs> yeah, lots of R&D there. I, I hope they're uh, they're happy with the results at the end of it. But, man, they, they, uh, they have a hard road to hoe to just find a little bit more. It's, it's tough. Yeah, it, it, again, it, it's what makes us kind of probably is what makes people shake their head at some class racers or like, what, why did you think that was a good idea? I thought I'd make it go faster. Yeah. Yeah. Ha having to, having to adhere to the rules that they have, it's, it's, I kind of think it's similar to the small tire race car guys that, uh, you know, they, they have a different limitation comps all about, you know, weight cubic inches and making the most power. And, and, but, but I look at some of the remarkable things that the small tire racers are doing. They have tons of horsepower. Now they got to figure out how to, how to put it through this small patch of, of rubber on the ground. And, and the cars are just amazing that what they're, what they're doing with some of those, some of those, um, no prep races down, down in the um, Southeast uh, area and stuff. It's, it's astounding. 
Yeah, let's get your take on that. You know, you've been around the sport for a while, seen a lot of stuff. Did you ever think we would see a car go 349 on a 315 radial tire? No, not ever. Not ever. And uh, I would have thought, you know, that would a lot sooner happen with a big tire car. Just because, I mean, from the traditional drag racers standpoint, it makes sense that you need more stick them on the ground to make that happen, that the acceleration needs to happen that way. But if, um, you know, as we, as we start to understand what it takes to keep a large tire accelerating, um, that they don't have to fight that same battle. It's a different type of acceleration that they're harnessing. And it's, it's amazing to see to me, the cars look a little strange. I like the, I like the big tire stance and all of that the, the rocker panel, nice and level to the ground. And, and the front end maybe hanging a little bit in the air, you know, but but the small tire cars, man, they get with it. It's it's crazy to you know you you talk about the chassis separation, I'm sure there, and it's it's crazy to watch some of these cars separate and how much they separate. It, it's mind blowing. It really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're uh, if a if a little bit's good, then a lot's got to be better, right? <laughs> Craig Sullivan told me when he had the barn burner pro mod and they put it on radials that he didn't realize, you know, it was going to be a gear change, a couple things here and there. He thought he was all said and done, good to go. And they, uh, Menster came back, I believe was, and said, you're going to fix your brake lines, right? He's like, why would I need to do that? You do realize this thing's going to be separating like almost two feet and your brake lines are not going to, you know, how you have them run, that's going to be a problem. It's one of those moments where it's, you start to realize, oh, that that needs to be addressed. Whole, whole different calculations. <laughs> yeah. And it and then you get someone like, you know, Jason Lee, who is one on, you know, that team with with the East Coast packing guys, that they've won a championship on radials They've or on in pro mod. They've won on radials. That car just goes back and forth and, you know, from a – from a racer standpoint that runs a chassis car, that's got to be pretty, pretty intense for you to think about that. They're taking a slick tire car and going that fast on radials. Cause that, that's not an easy switch. Yeah. I'm absolutely certain they did a ton of testing to do that because yeah, that you're, you're absolutely right. And it's, it may be the same race car, but the components underneath, um, you know, when you, for one thing, when you're going that fast, the balance of the car has got to be right. And I'm sure it's not the same balance, from one setup to the other, you know, um, that was one of the biggest difference we found moving from the super classes into the, into the top sportsman, um, class is that the, everything just matters more, you know, and, and I'm not even, our car's not even that fast compared to some of the cars you're talking about the, in the, in the mid three second range, man, oh man, it's, it's everything just matters so much more. Yeah, and you look at some of those other the other radial t- classes like you know the the project car we have blown Z twenty eight with James's car and that runs in limited drag radial, and that's just almost like the the that's like the old radial versus the world cars that that class got too fast and they were too heavy, and you've got yeah. guys they're going you know three nineties bottom fours with pretty heavy cars that are you know still look very much like a, a the original car, right. <laughs> And, yeah, it doesn't really make sense. No, and it's, you know, it, you talk to the the chassis guys and some of these racers and tuners, and they'll flat tell you it's cheaper and easier to go fast 
in a pro mod versus some of these these class cars because the class cars need steel roof, steel steel quarters, certain weights. That weight, you know, that makes a big difference when you're trying to tune one of these cars. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, that's not a not the world that I've I've forayed into. But yeah, I got a lot of respect for for the guys that are putting that kind of power to the to the ground. And I think that, you know, at least for me, I look at all forms of drag racing as being cool. It doesn't matter, bracket, heads up racing, everything about the sport is so, the, the dynamics of it is what interests me. It's, you know, you're trying to go brutally fast, but in bracket racing, you have to have a certain amount of finesse. Or in heads up racing, there's a certain finesse tuning you have. Do, do you think it takes like a certain mindset to be able to really go between those different realms? If, if you're a racer, at least, I think it does. In in the racers that are successful, apply themselves a tremendous amount. You know, talent won't get talent. Talent gets you some of it, but the hard work of of the discipline in the race in the in the seat, the discipline of preparing the car well, um, all of that just equates to hard work. Um, a few years back, I was involved in um, a Facebook group. It was uh, This is Bracket Racing Elite. It's uh, Luke Bogacki's deal. And um, I, learned, I learned some really important um, uh, techniques, and I was reminded of some stuff that I'd forgotten about. Um, but one of the biggest things that struck me was how hard some of these um, racers are willing to uh, work, how much time is dedicated. Uh, the... Uh, the gentlemen and the ladies that are that are doing well are dedicating sometimes hours per day um, just to their driving discipline, you know, and that's that's apart from all of the work that that it takes to get a race car prepared well, you know. So, so the hard work in every form of racing is is always going to be a constant. Just just the the amount of effort it takes to be successful. Yeah, that's. The thing that, you know, I, I crewed on radio tire car for a while and I've helped other people out, been around some teams that have won a lot of championships. And the thing that I never really understood, I think, about high level racing is what like you win the races before you even get to the track with how you prepare 100 <laughs> percent. That's pretty true. Um, I have a friend that uh, that tunes on a um uh, Mountain Motor Pro Stock uh, car. In fact, it, he's the tuner for the for the uh, PDRA Championship car. Um, his name's Chuck Samuel, and, and he and he's been invaluable for advice. A very very smart guy. Um, he tends to downplay the the guy in the seat quite a bit because he's done it. He's done it successfully. He he had one of the fastest uh, pro mods back in the early 2000s and stuff. And he said, Nah, really the tricky part is done by the tr by the time the drivers strapped in you know <laughs> yeah totally but uh still all of it needs to come together you need that you need the loose nut in the seat to do the right thing but uh but yeah prepping the car is is has got to be uh a very high priority before it ever goes in the trailer i don't know about you but one thing that when i'm racing i don't like showing up to the track with a to-do list i want that thing when it's when i show up to the track i unload it out of the box i put fuel in it or I go to tech. That's it. I can't stand like thinking about making like big changes that I have to make when I get to the track unless it's absolutely necessary. 
Yeah, I'm kind of right there with you. Um, I think there are a lot of different styles, uh, you know, of, of racers out there, but uh, I'm with you. I want I want my mind as free to to concentrate on on standard um, operating procedure before the before a run is made and and not have those distractions. But uh, you know, the car will throw some things at you that you weren't expecting. At Pomona, we ended up changing a, a rear end gear set between uh, elimination round two and three. Um, and we didn't really see that coming, but, uh, you know, it's, it's nice not to plan to thrash, but if you have to tra- have to thrash, then you do it. But <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. I like a, uh, uneventful event. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's funny you mentioned that because that was kind of where I was going to go with that is the, you know, at the Pomona event, you guys had the worst case scenario happen when you got to pull more than a screwdriver out of the toolbox when you, especially when you start tearing up rear ends. What's it like when you're at a big event like that, like a big NHRA event, and you're having to make those kind of thrashes and repairs versus just being at, you know, we'll say a regional race or something like that. You know, what's it like to go through that process? Uh, you know, f- for me. I, I have kind of set aside the aura of the national event. I think um, it's yes, it's a little bigger event as far as exposure and you know the television um, cameras or whatever. If you're so fortunate to go to the semis or the final uh, round, but other than that, for me, it feels quite like any other race. Um, so it, it you know when we broke the thing. Um, it was really just a matter of looking at how it all adds up. How much time do we have to get it up in the air, get the, get the gear set changed and get back. And the, the, the thing that we had to shortcut a little bit was cleaning. By the time we drug the car back to the pits, there was so much ground up gear material inside that, that third member that it was impossible to get it all out. So we just kept working and working until we felt like we were out of time. And then the, put the uh, third member back in it. Monty Green and his, and his uh, son-in-law, uh, Dominic, were, were helping me change it out. They were busy with the, with the impact wrenches, and I was busy with the brake flush and the, and the rags going in and out of there and stuff. And, you know, it was, it was uh, pretty much just a math problem. The, the clock tick kept ticking, and, and we needed, needed to be uh, ready to go by the time they got through another round of pros and alcohol. So it all, it worked out and we actually had about 20 minutes to spare, I think was about all, but, um, Oh, that's a lifetime after a thrash. It, it did seem like it. Yeah. It's like, Oh man, now I can have a sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) I I forget to eat. That's the first thing to go. Oh yeah. Don't feel bad as a media person. There's been days where I've looked at the clock. I'm like, it's three o'clock and I haven't eaten anything since I left the hotel at six this morning. That's a problem. Yeah. Right. (laughs) But it's because you're having so much fun, right? Usually it's just, you know, you're engaged and you just, you forget those basic things. It is. Yeah. 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 Until you're ready to pass out. Yeah. Yeah. Until you start getting hangry and your blood sugars bottom out. That That's a, and I think honestly, that's another interesting subject when you're racing at a high level that some racers don't take into account is, you know, you take care of the car. You got to take care of yourself, especially at some of these big events because they, they really are marathons. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, it can be, I think, honestly, I think the bracket races are a little bit tougher in that regard. Um, especially like the spring fling, they got that race coming up. We ran this car 
at the spring flake in 2018 and went to the final with it. Um, but, uh, gosh, it was 12 o'clock at night, like 1230 at night when we ran the final. And, uh, my dad was, I think 70 or no, he was, what was he like 82 years old at the time? And he was my, my crew guy. (laughs) (laughs) And, And by midnight, man, that was four hours past his bedtime. And he was, he was, he was hanging in there, but it was wearing on him. <laughs> Poking dad. Hey, dad, we got to make a run. Come on, wake up. Got to drive the golf uh, cart. Don't kill us man. on the way to the lanes. Yeah. No, he was, uh, I remember pulling into the water box for that race. And he, boy, he was just dragging his feet across the starting line going, let's get this over with, you know. <laughs> yes, oh. it's fun, but come on. <laughs> I, I have been there at events before where I'm looking at the, you know, you're looking at the clock. I've been, I'm, been up for more than 24 hours straight and we're just now getting to the finals and there's been times where I've pulled, we've pulled the car out of the trailer when the sun was coming up, and then we were putting it back in the trailer when the sun was coming up. Oh yeah, yeah. I haven't had it quite that bad, but yeah, the, the days can be very long at bracket races. That uh, I think that's honestly that's a little harder from a, just a pure stamina standpoint. Of course, um, the NHRA races with one elimination spread across four days. Um, that carries its own challenges, but it's really stay getting comfortable in the car after being out of the car for 15 hours or whatever it is, you know, just having one or two passes that, that are, um, that, that have to be right. You know, you gotta, you gotta be exact, but trying to stay in the zone spread across four days is, uh, it carries its own challenge, you know? Yeah. That's an interesting to talk about too, because, you know, as a racer, you're also part tinkerer, and you've got all this time in between. Is that something where you've got to kind of lock yourself out of wanting to touch the car and tune yourself out of wins? Uh, yeah, that's there's something to that. You know, um, we're always watching spark plugs with the nitrous engine, um, and sometimes we'll make small timing changes if it's getting on the edge of, of burning an electrode or something like that. And my crew guy, Steve Barber, he just cringes. He just, I can see him biting his tongue. He's like, don't change anything. No, we got to, we got to do this little thing. He said, that's going to change horsepower, you know, but well, he doesn't say anything, but I can just tell it's rolling around in his head. Don't change anything. (laughs) See, I I know a couple drivers in the heads up world, and even, even the guy I used to work for where if there was a lot of time in between, they would start playing with tunes and start creating multiple tunes you know, where they're not necessarily touching the car, but they're like, well, I need to tune for this. What if this happens and that happens? And then they're wrestling with their mind when we're getting ready to load up to go to lanes. They're like, what tune-up do I put in the car? Well, you've got 15 to choose from. Pick one. Yeah, right. And you can do that with the new with the new uh, engine control units. You can be, you know, hands off. It'll You can be a quarter of a mile away from the car and and put a new tune up in it, you know, so it's, there's too much opportunity maybe for tinkering. Yeah. Well, you know, I've told the story again. It, it just, it still amazes me is what Jason Lee, when he went 349 at ducks race. And even before he made that run, he was literally in the car, belted in Hans on laptop open. And with the hall tech, it, you know, it, it's a wireless connection. So he's got the laptop open at the ready line, making changes. <laughs> that's what you call indecisive (laughs) like i'm looking he's probably talking to his crew guy getting like the latest like what did that person do right before the run before us 
do I want to make any changes? He's probably making little tickles here and there. Closes the laptop, hands it to the crew guy, puts the gloves on, bangs the starter, makes a rip. I'm like, honestly, I'm like that's why he's one of the best at what he does. And even someone like a, we'll say like a Josh Ledford is a tuner. I've seen him up watching cars before their run, and he'll get on the radio and tell a crew guy, you know, give me two clicks on, you know, right rear shock. You know, making these last second adjustments right before they go up and run. Yeah, no, that's that's way beyond me. I I don't I don't uh, mess with that. But I've watched uh, the tuners, especially at the PDRA races, where you're where they're the highest highest end uh, uh, tuners. I think. Well, uh, you know, we're not talking about nitro racing or pro stock racing right now. Focusing mostly on the door car type, quick door car racing. I think those guys are um, probably the elite uh, of the sport. Yeah, pro mod tuning, you know, to me, that's almost like you have to really honestly separate out when you're at the top levels, the different forms of, we'll say, the alcohol cars, the nitro cars, pro stock and pro mod. You have to put all of them on their own little separate boxes on the flow chart because of just the sheer skill and the insanity it takes to get those cars to go down the track. They're, They're animals. They really are. Yeah, and totally different disciplines. Even even uh, among the alcohol cars, um, if you're talking about alcohol cars and you, and you have a roots car versus a uh, uh, injected nitro car, yeah, all, all their own challenges. Each each one each segment is so specialized anymore. Yeah, and like you're saying with with the PDRA cars and with you know with any form of pro mod racing, is that you're you're fighting the track. You're fighting the tune-up, and then you're physically, like the drivers, fighting the car because they want to do everything but go straight. Yeah, they do. <laughs> it's a good thing that uh, that the format is eighth mile at PDRA. I think, uh, you know, they're just such animals. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it would it would be hard to get them the second the second eighth of a mile. <laughs> well, that's the thing that still like sets the NHRE pro mod racing apart whether it's a good thing or bad thing because there's been some buzz that there's a lot of unhappy campers out there about the way that they're doing the pro mod deal which in my opinion it's it is what it is you don't like the rules don't come play but at the same time like quarter mile pro mod racing is just one of those like last outlaw things which is terribly ironic to say about the nhra being outlaw but most guys if honestly realize, you know what, let's race these things in eighth mile. Cause it's kind of safer and it's a little bit easier and more fun. Yeah. 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 I, I think the show runs a little bit cleaner and, um, that's good for the fans. That's good for, uh, you know, making it, making it more watchable and stuff. Yes. The big numbers are impressive. I mean, when they run quarter mile, Oh my gosh, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to watch. It is. Like, um, so you can make the argument for for both, I think. Yeah, it, it's just, to me, I never realized until a couple of years ago really what it took to take one of those cars from eighth to quarter mile trim and how really hard it is on those cars and how hard they are to drive because they're brutal on the front half, but on the back half, that's just, you know, who's got the most money to throw at parts because that's just the, that's the point of the show where you're just, you're tearing stuff up. Yeah, that, I, I'm sure you're right about that. I never even stopped to consider, but yeah, then, then it's, the second half of the track is just raw horsepower and 
you know, get the tune up as lean as you can and, and race it. Yeah, it's it's who has the, the largest amount of disregard for their rotating assembly parts at that point. <laughs> disregard for your rotating assembly it's like just you know those can like it's they they know the cycle time on their parts and how they do it and it's it'll be you know it'll be fine it's sure what i'm saying but it it again it's like you see the nitrous guys you know in pro mod and these and and the, the hardcore levels of radio racing putting a rack in a car on the weekend that's just a part of life a top sportsman yeah. racer i'm sure if you said you got to put a rack in this car twice this weekend just for regular maintenance you'd probably start reconsidering your uh, your life choices at that point. Yeah, absolutely. No. It's I think I think what you're what you're alluding to right there is just the fact that racing will take as much money and effort as you put towards it as yeah. you as you as you can afford to do it, you know. Um and uh it's it's really important to decide up front what you're willing to do and not do. <laughs> A, a wise man once told me, do not build anything you can't afford to blow up. Right. <laughs> it sounds like parental advice. Yeah, that, that my dad is like, don't build anything you can't afford to blow up. And I'm like, you know what? That kind of makes sense. You know, I probably could have put together, you know, uh, you know, a back marker ultra street car if I really wanted to. But the problem is I can't afford to blow up an ultra street car and I can't afford to maintain an ultra street car because... People think boats are expensive, you know, break out another hundred. Well, try a, try taking, you know, a high-end race motor or transmission to a shop because, you know, that engine builder is going to say, you know, just give me a couple grand now just to look at this thing and hope that when they pull it apart, nothing catastrophic went wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, uh, that's, that was another thing that led us to this to this nitrous combination it's fairly conservative it's only 600 cubic inches so it's been very easy on bottom end parts so far oh yeah so so you're not rocking a, a baby pro mod engine under there no no it's it's been it's been real easy it'll go 150 runs on a on a rebuild and we just just about a year ago uh started playing with the second kit so it'll probably shorten the life of some of the parts a bit um but so far the maintenance has been pretty easy on this car yeah, that's that to me. That's that sounds like if you're going to do it, that's the way to go. And it's funny that you kind of get your mind warped in certain ways when you go to some of these, a lot of these outlaw, the pro mod events, the no prep events, and stuff like that that I go to. Or for me, it's commonplace to see these guys doing like catastrophic major surgery as like routine mound round maintenance to a bracket racer. They'd look at that, they cry. Yeah, yeah, that's that's not uh. Uh, not something I would want to plan on doing, but, uh, but you know, God bless them for, for working that hard and putting on the show that they do, you know? Yeah. It, it's amazing to see. And it's one of those things where if I had the money, that that's the key. If I had the money, I would do it, but to do it right. And to go as fast as what some of those guys do in door cars, it just, it, it it's an exercise in money and intelligence because you kind of got to have both because if you don't, one's going to take from the other, especially on the money side of things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's pretty fun to be around that kind of enthusiasm though, that the passion that, that those guys have, I'm talking specifically about, um, the, uh, the PDRA pro boost and pro nitrous guys, um, and the, um, pro stock guys, uh, the passion that they bring to, 
to uh, to that discipline is is great to be around. You know, it's just exciting to to uh, to see those teams do what they do. And the cool thing about some of those series too is you see a lot of those guys. I mean, they're working people. They're business owners. I mean, they yeah. they're not racing for a living. They're racing because they don't want to play golf on the weekends. They are not country club kind of guys That's and right. gals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, yeah, you see see guys and gals doing doing incredible things there. And and as a side job, it's like it's like they have two full time jobs. <laughs> oh, it, yeah. It depending on what you run. I mean, that's how you have to look at it. Is if you're not putting twenty plus hours a week into that vehicle before you go to the track, you're you're not gonna have a good time when you try to go to said track. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Good stuff. Well, Don, I always like to ask my guests some fun and interesting questions, you know, to kind of throw a little curveball at them. And I've been wrestling with what I would try to ask you. And it's funny because for those that have met you is you do not like come off as someone that would be a drag racer. It's, it's to me, it's that that's the one thing that I've always noticed about you. It's like, this guy goes this fast and he doesn't seem, you know, it's like Doug Coletta. Doug Coletta doesn't seem like a guy that races a nitro car. I, I expect Doug Coletta would be like my, my CPA, you know, that's just his looking how it is. You know, you never know he, that he, you know, he's beat up on Tony Stewart before, but that's another story for another time. So we're going to put you in the situation, Dom, where you have to race something other than your top sportsman car. What I mean that is we're going to, you know, I'm going to stick you in the pro ranks. So you're either going to drive a nitro funny car, nitro dragster, pro stock car, pro stock bike. If you're feeling kind of crazy, we're throw pro mod in there. Cause it's, you know, just because reasons, what would you race and why? Gosh, I think that would be pro mod. <laughs> I just, I just like, uh, like the door slammer deal. Um, and, uh, I like the uh, unpredictability of them. Not that they're, well, gosh, a nitro funny car. What can be more predict- unpredictable than that? But, um, yeah, I just like uh, the layout of the cars that you're sitting in the normal driving position. Of course, my Aussie friends would probably argue with that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, in the... Uh, We've just we've just always been big fans of the door car stuff. We got we got good relationships with a lot of the door car chassis builders. We make parts for them, and and uh, that's just always been my focus of of uh, of going fast. You know, the the pro mod stuff would be a riot. I would love to do that. Which is interesting and terrifying at the same time, Don, because there are two vehicles or classes that even the nitro racers, when I've asked them that question, I'm, you know, it's like, what would you not race? The majority of their answers are a pro mod and a nitro Harley. <laughs> so that's kind of telling that, you know, you'd say you jump behind me because you know what, when a nitro racer goes, I'm kind of scared of those that gets my attention. Yeah, that's odd. I, I, uh, I'm going to have to take some time and process that maybe rethink my decision. Uh, <laughs> No, I think it's perfect. I, I mean, that you know, that, that 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 says a lot that you're willing to cowboy up like that. And I could totally see the Nitro Harley thing because that's uh, those guys. I've had I had Ty Tharp on the show. They're amazing, but that's just a level of crazy that I'm not willing to try to ascend to. <laughs> the first time I saw a Nitro Harley motorcycle, 
um, I had been listening to them run for a while, but I was on the other side of the stands and it sounded like a big nothing happening. You know, they just, the nitro Harleys just kind of have that monotone, you know, one pitch starting line to finish line. So you don't get any kind of appreciation for the acceleration that's happening. And, and, and the guy balanced on top of that with the flak jacket and the, and you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And the big steel uh, plate to keep things from flying up at him. But uh, yeah, that, that's a whole, that's, that's, that's on the lunatic fringe. I, I think that's putting it mildly. <laughs> it's a, it's a 200 mile an hour, six second unicycle. If you think about it. It is. If they got the front end on the ground, there's something wrong. Yeah, it's a slow run. It's like a pro mod driver that, you know, when a run looks smooth, they're like, yeah, that was a slow run because it looks smooth. That's why, I, I, yeah, the, if, if someone said, you know, you have to race a Nitro Harley, I'd probably go, do I really? What's another option? Let's think here. I'll ride on the wing of the funny car. Maybe not try to ride the, the bike. No, thanks. Yeah, right. Strap me to anything else. <laughs> yeah, literally. Well, Don, our time here is coming to the end, and I like to give my guests their opportunity to kind of channel their inner John Force like he used to and thank all the sponsors and thank everybody needs to thank. So, uh, of course, I'm going to turn the floor over to you so you can thank who you need to thank, tell people where they can learn about what you got going on in the whole deal. So, uh, floor is yours, my friend. I appreciate that. And uh, first off, thanks to you for, for uh, allowing me to be a part of your, uh, your format here, the podcast. Um, the people that helped me out the, on the race car, obviously my brothers here at Vizier Enterprises and my dad getting us started off, um, chassis tuning, Clayton, Clayton over at chassis engineering, um, my engine builder and transmission guy, Monty Green of Green Racing Engines, um, and, uh, just all the, all the people here at Vizier Enterprises that, uh, try to put good products together every day, uh, and, uh, course vortec for helping us out with the uh sponsoring the top sportsman class out here the series um appreciate nhra and pdra and uh, drag zine and um all of that well don it was awesome having you on the show and uh hopefully we'll uh get to see you at the track you're relatively soon that sounds good take care of yourself